You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's October 14th. Last week, President Joe Biden announced that he is pardoning people who were convicted on federal charges of simple cannabis possession. The move is a major step in changing a federal approach to cannabis that has disproportionately affected communities of color for decades. It's unclear how many people this will affect, but the figure is certainly in the thousands. In fact, RAND research finds that in the state of Virginia alone, expunging criminal records for adult cannabis possession offenses could affect more than 200,000 people, about half of whom would be people of color. According to RAND's Bo Kilmer, who wrote about this topic shortly after the president's pardons were announced, federal and state policymakers should consider other ways to fight the racial wrongs of cannabis prohibition. For example, they could use legalization as a vehicle to build wealth in communities of color. But if this is the goal of legalization, then decision makers will need to pay attention to how policies affect cannabis prices. That's because in states where cannabis is already legal, we've seen prices drop, presumably because states have allowed cannabis to be sold by companies that are trying to maximize their profits. For example, in Oregon, the median price for one gram of cannabis flour was $10.50 in October of 2016. Last month, it was less than half that, $4.17. As cannabis prices fall, it may become harder for smaller entrepreneurs to compete in the market, and many will go out of business. And if cannabis taxes are a percentage of the price, which is common, then the tax revenues will also decrease as prices fall. This could mean fewer resources for any related programs intended to support and build wealth in communities of color. The cascading effects of cannabis pricing demonstrate how legalization isn't just a yes or no choice. There are many ways for state and federal policymakers to shape the market and tax it, Kilmer says. Quote, With deliberations in Washington, D.C. beginning and more states set to vote on the cannabis legalization in November, now is the time for lawmakers to take stock of how potential changes will or won't help communities of color. Last month, Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed to use all the forces and means at his disposal against Ukraine and the West. Many doubt that he will follow through on this threat, but concern about Russian nuclear action is nonetheless growing. So, with the talk of nuclear apocalypse in the air for the first time in decades, would Putin actually use nukes? And what would happen if he did? Rand's Edward Geist recently discussed this in New York Magazine. Geist points out that we're not seeing the indicators we would expect to see if Moscow were about to use one of its tactical nuclear weapons— For instance, Russia doesn't appear to have taken the steps to move its launch systems and warheads to the same place, which would be necessary for a strike. However, Geist also points out that Russia could conceivably take some of these preparation steps purely as intimidation tactics, without any intention of using a nuclear weapon. Geist games out a number of scenarios in which Putin could deploy nuclear weapons, from using a low-grade tactical nuke above a body of water as a show of force, to using weapons on facilities or people. 
He also discusses the possibility of the weather making nuclear fallout worse. For example, detonating a nuke when there's a rain cloud overhead could result in what nuclear experts call rainout, a phenomenon that could contaminate the ground below. Ultimately, Geist emphasizes that there is a lot that we don't and can't know about the probability of nuclear war. And that's part of what makes the current situation so scary. It's not like there's some magical dial in a cabinet at the Kremlin and Putin is twisting it up and down, he says. The nuclear threshold doesn't work like that. We don't quite know how the different actions we take interact with that cosmic danger. Talks to reinstate the Iran nuclear deal have been dragging on for 18 months. Why has the deal been so hard to cinch? According to Rand's Heather Williams, the answer may lie with the complex dynamics in Tehran. Williams reminds us that when U.S. President Joe Biden took office, Hassan Rouhani, who was Iran's president at the time, had just a few months left in his second term. It was clear that nobody representing Rouhani's camp of pragmatists would be allowed to run in 2021, so there was a narrow opening when he could champion and oversee reinstalling the nuclear deal. But those who were hopeful about this window of opportunity failed to account for Iranian politics. It is, in fact, Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, who can ultimately decide whether to restore the nuclear agreement. Fast forward to June 2021. Iran has a new president, Ibrahim Raisi, who is tightly aligned with the supreme leader's politics. The first thing that the Raisi administration did was to review the deal, likely with the goal of putting its own mark on the accord. And by early 2022, there was some hope that a deal might be reached. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. This complicated the geopolitical picture and prompted the Iranians to look for new opportunities within the deal. Williams says that this ongoing saga may be compounded by the fact that Ibrahim Raisi is turning out to be a mediocre president. As you've probably seen in the news recently, the death of Masa Amini after her arrest by Iran's so-called morality police has led to weeks of street protests, dozens of deaths, and international outrage. Perhaps a more astute and savvier president could have figured this out, Williams says, but Raizi has not been up to the task. As negotiations continue, it will only get more difficult to revive the Iran nuclear deal, she says. And at some point, the juice won't be worth the squeeze. Many companies engage in digital offshoring, using technologies to move jobs overseas to cheaper locations as a way to help their bottom lines. The use of digital offshoring has grown recently, and it may be one of the long-term effects of the remote work boom that began earlier in the pandemic. Another way to look at this practice is to consider that many job roles and services that companies provide are about to go through a period of globalization similar to what the manufacturing sector experienced in the late 90s and early 2000s. In a new paper, Rand economist Tobias Sitzma considers how digital offshoring could affect U.S. workers. Unsurprisingly, he finds that there will be winners and there will be losers. The trend could spell trouble for people in occupations that have become easier to offshore, and cities that have built their regional economy on such jobs may want to keep an eye on emerging remote work trends over the next several years. For example, San Francisco, where half of the city's publicly traded companies have gone fully remote, 
could be a bellwether for other regional technology hubs. And on the upside, digital offshoring will create demand for other types of jobs in the U.S. Again, in San Francisco, office buildings that were once built for technology firms are being converted and leased as life science laboratory space. Sitzma also notes that while there will always be good jobs available for American workers, not everyone will have access to those opportunities. And we can't expect that the transition from today's economy to the economy of the future will be painless. U.S. military activities in outer space have evolved significantly since the 80s. The most recent developments include the reestablishment of U.S. Space Command and, in 2019, the creation of the U.S. Space Force. A new RAND report finds that China and Russia see the U.S. military's extraterrestrial activities as threatening and as signs of hostile intent. The authors point out that both countries seem to hold a confirmation bias with this view. Plausibly aggressive U.S. activities tend to reinforce the perception that the U.S. military has a hostile intent in space, and initiatives that are plausibly cooperative are seen as disingenuous. Additionally, both Chinese and Russian officials believe that the U.S. has led the way to militarizing space, leaving them no choice but to counter. As a result, it appears that Washington, Beijing, and Moscow are caught in a vicious cycle that perpetuates military action in space. These insights raise important questions. For example, Moscow and Beijing clearly share an outlook on U.S. activities in space. So, as their bilateral cooperation grows, including in the areas of remote sensing and satellites, and maybe even a joint base on the moon, what are the implications? Might it lead to greater coordination between the two countries on the international stage? Time will tell. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.